Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your love, the blessing of fellowship, Lord God. Thank you for Ignition, this church family that we get to gather together every week uh, and see the same sweet people and meet new people. And most importantly, Lord, be in a place where others are seeking you, where we can be like-minded, Lord God, seeking uh, the move of the Holy Spirit in our lives, seeking your direction and desiring to worship you, Lord God. We want to do what we do here intentionally, and even as, as Gabe mentioned, Lord, we want to be uh, fervent as we pursue you. We really want to hear what you have to say to us. And so we come once again to the pages of Scripture with great expectation for what you would speak into our hearts and into our lives, believing that you're, you, only you have the words of eternal life. Lord, believing that you have uh, direction for us. You have everything we need for life and for godliness. So bless our study. Be our teacher this evening, Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. Amen. Genesis 44. Tonight, it's almost the grand finale. We finally get to see Joseph and his brothers restored in their relationships. It's been a long time coming. It's taken a lot of time because... Joseph has needed to see change in his brother's hearts before he will allow himself to be reconciled to him. So he's given them little tests along the way, and he's about to give them a really big test, the deciding test, really. He's forgiven them. We've seen this. In that he's treated them with kindness. He has no ill will. He doesn't have a vengeful heart towards them. However, he's waiting to see if he can be restored to them. He's waiting to see, he's, he's looking for something to say that it's okay to restore their brotherhood together. And so before we get into this account, before we get into this text, I want to talk with you guys a little bit about this subject, about forgiveness and about reconciliation. Forgiveness is really one of the more difficult concepts of Christianity. It is. Now, it's, it's simple in that we can go to the Lord, confess our sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. But that's because Jesus Christ paid the price of forgiveness on our behalf. We can freely be forgiven. That's the easy part. That's the simple part. The difficult aspect is Jesus said, freely you've received, freely you shall give. Jesus says, you ought to forgive others even as I have forgiven you. This is the difficult part of forgiveness. In fact, he said it's so significant. He said this, if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. That's a scary verse. That is a scary verse. That's how important forgiveness is, to give out. We freely receive it, but we don't always freely give it, do we? It's a, it's a, it's, there's a cost involved for us. It's hard for us to give. And I think one reason we tend to struggle with forgiving others is because we tend to confuse forgiveness with reconciliation. We tend to think that forgiving someone means that we have to fully trust someone again. Sometimes I think we struggle to extend that forgiveness because that's what we think we're doing. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. They're not exactly the same thing. And they don't always go hand in hand. Ideally, they will. But they don't always go hand in hand. There are two Greek words 
in the New Testament for forgiveness. When we are commanded to forgive, two Greek words. The first one is afayumi, which means to release, to let go of. It has this strong connotation of separating, departing. In fact, it's the same word they'll use for divorce, afayumi, to release, to let go. This is, this is the word Jesus used when he said, if you do not forgive, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Same word, release, you have to let go of. And the idea of this kind of forgiveness is setting others free from that little prison in your heart. You know what I'm talking about? That little room that you keep inside your mind where you love to shove people that you don't like, that you're angry with. The people that you've reserved bad thoughts for and hoping they get what they deserve. You jam people in that. Because sometimes it's easier to deal with people by shoving them in that little prison in your heart. But I want to tell you that it's, it's unhealthy to keep people in that little room. In fact, it's unhealthy for you. That you, we all have that room in our hearts, but we're supposed to keep it cleaned out. We're supposed to keep it empty. Here's the thing about that little room. The more people you shove in there, the easier it is to shove more people in there. It becomes a coping mechanism where you don't actually deal with your relationship issues. You just shove people in this room of unforgiveness. You lock people up in prison in your heart and in your mind, and you don't look for any, any room to forgive. You hold on to offenses. It's what that looks like. You look for every opportunity to talk bad and to make sure other people are aware of what that person did or how bad they are. That is what that little prison in your heart looks like. And Jesus says, Afayumi. He says, release them. Let go. Let go of those offenses. That's what that word means. That's the idea. The other word for forgiveness is the word karitsame. I like it because it sounds Japanese. Konnichiwa, karitsame. No, I'm just kidding. But this word, uh, karisame, the root word is karis, which some of you Bible scholars might know, that's the Greek word for grace. To, to give unmerited, to extend unmerited favor. That's the root word of karisame. And the, the, the meaning of it is to do a favor, to gratify, to pardon, or deliver. So this is speaking of a forgiveness, of, of, of forgiving others regardless of whether they deserve it or not. Extending grace in forgiveness. Letting go regardless of whether they have asked for it or deserve it. You let go. And we're commanded to do that as well. In Colossians uh, chapter 3, Paul says, you, you should forgive even as Christ forgave you, so also. Charisame, that's what that word is. But let me tell you, none of these words, neither of these words explicitly mean to reconcile or restore. So the command that is non-optional is to release, to let go, to forgive. The other thing that we have to consider is reconciliation and restoration. When does that come in? Like I said, ideally, reconciliation will follow forgiveness if the other party is repentant if they desire to change, then a natural result will be reconciliation and perhaps even restoration. You might say, well, Sean, isn't everyone who is forgiven by God reconciled to God and restored to God? Don't they go hand in hand with regards to the Lord? And I'll say, yes, they do. When we come to the Lord and we're forgiven, we're cleansed, God can see right to our repentant hearts and He knows 
we are reconciled and we are restored before Him. Here's the kicker. You can't see somebody's heart. You can hear somebody's profession. You can extend forgiveness regardless of the circumstances, but we are to exercise wisdom and discretion with regards to restoration. The Bible says we should be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. We need to judge fruits. We need to be discerning. There's a proverb that says, the wise see punishment and hide themselves. A fool passes on and is punished for it. Right? So we have to, we have to exercise, okay, what, what's, where's this person at? Are they truly repentant? If they're not repentant at all, then it becomes very clear to us. But the reality is, apart from that repentance, there is no healthy reconciliation. I'll say that again. Apart from the, per- the offender's repentance, true repentance, there will not be healthy reconciliation. Unless someone has truly changed, they probably should not be restored to their former position in your life. The, the person who committed some heinous crime, they can receive forgiveness. They can be brought back in, but there are certain limitations to what they can do now in society. There are certain limitations that we have to place on individuals at a church, even though we forgive them and we love them and we want them edified in Christ. If someone had a track record or an arrest record for um, child molestation, let's say, there's no way we're going to let that person ever hang out in the kids' ministry. Not because we don't forgive them. Not because they are not now in a right relationship with the Lord but because we have to be wise about how we do things. We have to be wise about our relationships. We actually see this in 2 Corinthians. There was a man who was in sexual immorality, and they're all like, we're so forgiving, man. Even this guy gets to hang out with us. And Paul's like, what are you doing? Like, that's not, no, 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 that's not healthy. You need to remove him from, because he was a professing believer, but he was in outright sexual sin openly. Paul said, you need to remove him. That's, Dangerous in a church fellowship. So by the, time, by the time 2 Corinthians is written, Paul says, hey, this guy has repented. So now we can restore him back into fellowship. And he, he is restored into fellowship. In fact, this is what we see here in the life of Joseph. As he seeks to know if his brothers are truly repentant before restoring their relationship. He has to know things have, things have changed. So we, left, we last left off with Joseph hosting his brothers for a feast, but he's not revealed himself to them yet. They just had this amazing feast. They're thinking, man, we are good to go. The Egyptian ruler, we finally have favor. We have Simeon back from from being in prison. We've paid for the grain. We brought Benjamin so he could see Benjamin. We should be good to just head back home before anything else crazy happens in the land of Egypt. But something else crazy is about to happen. Joseph has a surprise. The surprise of their life in this next chapter. Verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city Now Joseph said to his steward, follow up uh, after them, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? 
Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. So there's one thing that's obvious about these guys. They have a hard time watching their saddlebags. If you remember last chapter too, the guy snuck in the silver. It's like, you guys need to watch your stuff a little bit better. But Joseph in the scripture, he's one of the few people who really has nothing bad said about him. He's really one of the flawless characters in scripture. Joseph, can you guys think of the other character in the Old Testament? Who really, there's nothing bad about him. Samuel. Samuel. And then, of course, Jesus, who is flawless. But Joseph and Samuel, they're like these two amazing heroes. They're not perfect, but there's, they just have this amazing testimony. Well, this is one of those texts that people like to go to to point out. Joseph actually had some issues, bro, because he would actually set people up for theft. He would frame people. See this? And he was into witchcraft, like practicing divination with his cup. What is that all about, right? Now, we don't know for sure um, whether he did practice divination or not. But I would, I would lean towards he did not. It's possible that, that Joseph had this divination cup and he might even use it in his prayers to the Lord because that was, we know, historically speaking, it was customary for rulers of that day to have some kind of cup and in some, some way practice divination and try to tell the future. That was, that was what, his, that's what history teaches us about pharaohs and and rulers of that age. So it would be natural as a ruler of Egypt, he would have a divination cup. But we also know he served the true and living God. He didn't serve the gods of Egypt. So it wasn't necessarily the same thing. And the law of divination hadn't been given yet. So is it possible that in some way he practiced divination with his cup? Yes. I think it's more likely, though, that he just happened to have a divination cup. Pharaoh assigned him one, right? And it's the perfect... Thing to use in that he needed something valuable and something personal to give these guys so that he would be able to go out after them angry. And he also wanted to convince them he, he was a, uh, an Egyptian ruler, not a Hebrew. So claiming to practice divination would further that, that, that cover up there. So we also see him framing his brother, fr- framing his brothers. What's the deal with that? Well, we know Joseph's heart in that he's not trying to get them in trouble. Joseph's desire is to be reconciled to his brothers. He loves them. He doesn't want them to get... He just wants them to think they're in trouble. He's got this whole thing set up and he wants to put Benjamin in a predicament, in this precarious situation to see how they will respond. So it's a good plan. Verse 6, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan how then could we steal silver and gold from your Lord's house? He's saying, before, when we could have stolen easily from you, we brought it all back to you. Why would we turn around and try and steal from you now? Verse 9, whichever your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. So they're confident. They're like, look, none of us stole it. By the way, this is a good testimony that they trusted each other. They knew no one here was stupid enough to steal that cup. So if you find it, we kill them and we'll be your slaves. That's how confident they were that they were innocent. And then the servant said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest, ending with the youngest. 
and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. That must have been just such a dejected time of loading their donkeys. Like, are you kidding me? And to, to wait till the very last brother. And this servant knows what he's doing. He's really tugging on their heartstrings, like messing with their emotions. But it's for the purpose of bringing him to, to this point of dejection. The great moment of testing has come for these guys. And it's wrought here with turmoil and it's wrought with grief. And I wish it weren't the case, but that's often the case in our lives. When God desires to bring about a moment of testing for us, seldom is it an easy thing. When the Lord wants true colors to come to the surface, oftentimes it takes that refiner's fire. It takes difficulty and turmoil, maybe even tragedy, to bring out our true feelings, our true thoughts, and our motives. James chapter 1 makes it really clear that God does not tempt anyone. That's what the book of James says. God is not trying to get anyone to sin. He's not trying to allure anyone to sin, but God will allow us to be tested in order to strengthen our character, in order to strengthen our faith and refine our faith. We see this in the life of Job. You guys know the life of Job. God allowed Satan to touch Job, to tempt Job, to take everything from Job. But it's also not a coincidence that Job passed the test and he was restored with more blessing than he had before. God knew what He was doing in Job's life. These men are allowed to be tested as well, and it, it'll turn out to their advantage as well. Right now, I want to point to it. Right now, it is very difficult for them. But Joseph knows where this is going, and so does the Lord. Joseph is motivated here by his heart of reconciliation. And God is motivated by doing the same good work in your life. God is not trying to make your life difficult He's trying to bring to the surface things that He wants to remove from your life. He's trying to maybe even work reconciliation where there wasn't before. So whenever we find ourselves in these moments of testing, in the moment where you're like, you've got to be kidding me, and you think it's all over, and your true colors are coming out, in those moments we should ask, God, what are you doing in this moment? What do you want to show me? What lesson am I supposed to learn here? And, and even beyond that, to say, Lord, I trust you with this crazy circumstance. Help me respond in the right way. But Joseph has a plan for his brothers, just like God has a plan for us guys. 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? Or can tell the future. So he's also claiming to have like a supernatural power. Hey, don't you know that I'm a psychic and I, I knew that you were going to steal that cup and I knew exactly where you were going and I could catch you? And he's really, he's really freaking them out, I'd imagine, at this point. And Judah said, What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. They're not guilty, though. So how is God finding out their guilt? 
You see, Judah, Judah here still thinks God is out to get them for what they did to Joseph. They still don't know this is Joseph. And they still bear the guilt of what they did to their young brother and selling him into slavery. So this whole time that God is bringing about reconciliation, they're still thinking God is going to punish us and it's finally happening. That's what Judah is saying here. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. They know that if they go to their father without, without Benjamin, it will be anything but peace. It will be more peaceable for them to all go into slavery together than for them to return to Jacob without Benjamin. And I would hate to see how Jacob would respond to that. In fact, Jacob himself said, it's going to kill me if that happens. And Judah knows this. Verse 18, Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. I think it's interesting that Judah has taken the lead here to intercede. I think it's interesting that Judah is the spokesman now of the brothers. Judah is also the one through whom the Messiah would come. And so he's the one now interceding here. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or brother? Verse 29, 20 through 29 here, basically Judah recalls all that has taken place with Benjamin and their conversation and their request. Verse 30, we'll skip down. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So Judah expresses his love for Benjamin and his concern for his father. When faced with the opportunity to ditch Benjamin and to be on their merry way, they actually choose to do whatever it takes to set Benjamin free. And Judah being the one to offer this is an especially strong case of repentance because Judah was the one who had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Like as they were, pro they were proposing to do bad things, Judah was the one that came up with the best idea. Hey, why don't we sell him and make money? So you know that Joseph had some hard feelings toward Judah. If there was anyone that he struggled to forgive, it was the one who came up with the idea. And now here he is, Judah himself, Take, offering to take the place of Benjamin. Jesus said that there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend. And Judah's expressing this love for Benjamin. Judah willingly lays his life down and says, take me instead of the boy. It would be better this way. And really, guys, this is the highest and most Christ-like act of love that we could demonstrate. And that is to die to yourself for the benefit of others. To die to your own desires for the betterment of those around you. Even to lay your own life down so that others may live. That is, that is the character of Christ. 
That is the heroic um, measures that Christ took for us and one that he calls us to take. Judah exhibits this love. And then Joseph, he's standing there and he sees this heart of repentance in his brothers and he can't hold it in anymore. And so he just bursts open. Chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And so here's their judge, the guy that has the power to take their life and he starts bawling in front of them and they're like, this is not good. Like, this guy's a lunatic. There's something off about this man. You know, and he's, he's about to judge us. Uh, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So, for the first time, Joseph speaks to them directly and in Hebrew. It's such a twist in the plot. I don't know if you've watched a movie where the, the plot twist is just so huge that you're kind of like, your brain's trying to catch up and trying to put things together. They're kind of caught in this moment of awe. Like, wait, what just happened here? At this point, the camera crews are coming out from the back and they're discovering they're on a reality show and they're all like, <laughs> you know. They are just, they don't know how to process it. It's too much for them. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And so he makes himself known, finally. And, and they're amazed. And they're speechless. But notice he said, I'm your brother. Remember the one you sold into slavery. But I think that's important. I think we see Joseph forgive them. We see Joseph treat them with kindness. We saw Joseph now reconciling with his brothers, but he still acknowledged the wrong they had done. And I think this is important as well. I think most, most people struggle to let go of the offense. I think that's, in most cases, the issue. We have a hard time not bringing up the issue when we should let it go. But there are a few people and types of people who have the opposite problem, and that is they don't always acknowledge the offense. And maybe because they're afraid to deal with it, maybe people who hate confrontation will do this. People who are often codependent will do this, and they won't acknowledge an offense. They'll pretend like it didn't happen so that they could just move on. And that's not the healthy path to reconciliation either. In fact, the cards need to be on the table. When I'm counseling people, I often tell them, you have to put all the cards on the table for this reconciliation to work. All the feelings, all of, all of the actions, all that went wrong, so that we can look at all these pieces and, and approach it biblically. So that we have all the, the pieces to the puzzle so that we can put this thing back together how God desires it to be put back together. And if that does not happen, healthy reconciliation won't take place. It won't. And some people are just so sick of fighting, they're just like, whatever. And they get back together. But let me tell you, like, if you shove these offenses, if you don't bring them out and actually acknowledge them, 
and allow the other person to say, yes, I did that, I'm sorry, and repent from that, then it's going to fester. You're going to pretend like it never happened and it's, you're going to shove it down deep and you're going to be a time bomb. And one day it might come out, finally come out in a horrible way. If you do not address offenses, then you're going, you're going to be a part of creating an unhealthy relationship where you continue to be the violated party and they continue to be the offender. The relationship explodes and goes in a horrible direction because it wasn't brought to the surface. I know this is deep stuff, but forgiveness, reconciliation, is this not the, are these not the issues of life? Aren't these the deepest pains that we experience is relational pain? And God has come to bring healing to these areas. If you look at how God seeks to deal with our sin, He doesn't sweep it under the rug and say, hey, oh, I don't want to hear it. Don't. He wants to bring it to light so that he can deal with it. Hey everyone, Pastor Sean here. You've been listening to a teaching from Ignition Tucson, the Young Adults Ministry of Calvary Tucson. Our hope is that through this ministry, your heart would be ignited to live boldly for Christ. If you live in the greater Tucson area and you're between the ages of 18 and 28, we want to invite you out to join us in person. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus on Speedway and Camino Seco. We hope to see you there. God bless.